Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Dan Balls, Chief Correspondent for The Washington Post. Dan has covered politics for The Post since 1978, having received the John Chancellor Award for Excellence in Journalism in 2017, among many others. Dan, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. So for people uh, to know, Dan and I go back to the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School at Harvard, where uh, we spent uh, a long time together. And it's, it's always so educational for me to spend time with you. So thanks so much, Dan. Well, Michael, um, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be part of this and um, part of the launching of uh, this podcast. So um, congratulations. Well, thank you. So let's turn And, and to- congratulations on your ANC Victory. <laughs> That's right. Right. So, listen, <laughs> listening audience, I am now uh, an elected in, uh, advisory neighborhood commissioner for the District of Columbia in a hard fought uh, political election. So, Dan, um, we had an election recently, I, I recall, and um, David Brooks, writing about it, said, quote, Many people voted against partisan predilections to remove a man who is a unique menace to the foundation of our country. So the question is, is the big takeaway from this election, and we'll talk about the down ticket stuff, but is the biggest takeaway of this that 75 plus million people just felt that Donald Trump, the individual was unacceptable? Well, yes, I think that's a fair way to put it. but I think it's more than just the individual. I think it's the way the individual uh, conducted himself in the White House. Um, and David's other point, which is that many people saw Donald Trump and see Donald Trump as a threat to many of the basic institutions of a democratic society. So I think it was more than just kind of revulsion at tweets and you know a, a man who spends much of his time you know, attacking others and, you know, expressing his grievances. Uh, I think it was, it was bigger than that. It was that, that in one way or another, uh, he had conducted himself in office in ways that were detrimental to the, to, the, to the country and certainly to the future of the country. And that with another four years in office, he could do much more damage um, than he had done in the first four years. Um, so it was, it was, it was a repudiation 
of him and what he stood for, but not necessarily, as, as David suggests or you suggest, um, a conservative ideology or a Republican ideology. Yeah, and so that's that's the logical next question. 70 plus million people voted for him, notwithstanding uh, your description of him as a threat to the fundamental foundations of our democracy and um, Brooks calling him a unique menace, 70 plus million people voted for them. So how do we read that? Do we read that as a, an acceptance of the policy positions that he took or that he's, he's a demagogue and demagogues have followings? We've seen that over, over history. How do, you, how do you sort that? Well, it's some of both, frankly. I mean, part of it is that, that he, he generated a great loyalty uh, among, you know, I, I won't put a number on it, but a significant portion um, of half the country. I mean, they were, they were tremendously loyal. And you could see that in the rallies that he held both in 2016 and then in the final stages of the 2020 election. Um, th there are people who are devoted to Donald Trump because they believe he speaks for them and to them uh, in a way that, frankly, no other Republican in the country seems to be able to do. So part of it was simply, you know, just an expression of loyalty. Um, and, and frankly, he brought people out that, again, other, you know, other people, other candidates on the Republican side probably wouldn't have been able to do. Um, he obviously generated turnout on the Democratic side um, as well. But part of it also is that in some of what he did, uh, he was quite conventional in his Republican orthodoxy. Um, we know where he's strayed from that, um, whether it's on trade policy or kind of, a, a, you know, kind of the way he's approached the world. Um, but um, he, he supported big tax cuts. He put through, you know, a tremendous amount of regulatory change, deregulation. Um, he rolled back uh, environmental protections um, and, and he supplied Mitch McConnell with a steady stream of conservative judicial nominations, which has changed not just the Supreme Court, but has changed the appellate courts and, and, uh, and the, the district courts, uh, which you would know more about than I. But so there were motivations on the part of people who voted for him that may have been different, um, but it, it, it was a combination of sheer loyalty to a single individual um, and and a belief that the ideology of of whatever Trump was going to push for in a second term would be preferable to what Joe Biden and the Democrats were offering. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about Mitch McConnell and, and and the House and the Senate, but I just want to jump ahead to to ask you. He's going to leave office eventually. These lawsuits will not, he will not prevail in, in the courts uh, from what we've seen so far. And ultimately there'll be a transition um, from, from power. What do you, given what we've just talked about, the loyalty to him by 70 plus million people, where does he go from here? What, what, do, you, what do you see for the next act of Donald Trump? I assume that the next act involves maintaining a very high, <coughs> excuse me, a very high public profile. Um, you know, even before he was president, he, you know, that was part of his brand um, to be visible, 
to be a big character. Um, I don't assume that, you know, like other presidents, that he will go to the sidelines and you know, write his memoir and build a library and be happy in relative obscurity. I think he is going to want to be um, visible and active in, in maintaining the Trump brand, not just the corporate brand, but the individual brand. Um, you know, he's apparently talked to people privately about running for president in 2024. It would not be a surprise if he, in one way or another, declares his candidacy or suggests that he's going to be running um, immediately after he leaves the White House. Um, it, it, is, it is hard to think of um, who at this point would have a, a, a louder voice, a bigger platform, greater reach, uh, more visibility um, as the head of the Republican Party at this point than Donald Trump. And um, I would suspect that he will not want to squander that in the near future. And, and then we will have to see whether people in the party move on from him and the country moves on from him, or whether he retains some kind of a hold on a significant enough part of the Republican Party that he, in fact, is maintains his, his role as titular head. Yeah. And you, you write, um, in, in speaking of the Republicans who, you know, for all odds makers, odds will retain uh, the Senate. The, the, the likelihood of two Democrats picking up seats in Georgia remains, I think, not realistic. Possible, but not, not realistic. But we'll see. Um, but you write that even if McConnell extends a friendlier hand to Biden than he did to Obama, and he really did extend much of a friendly hand to Obama, <laughs> um, its impact will be limited because McConnell, as the leader of the Republicans, and many others in his party will demand resistance and opposition to virtually every initiative that Biden puts forward. So do you still see that as the case? And does Trump as an activist on the sidelines make it even more difficult for McConnell to cooperate with Biden in any way on the significant issues upon which the American people have some consensus? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, for a couple of reasons. Um, if if Donald Trump indicates that he's going to be a player in 2024 um, as, as an active candidate. Um, he, he will be urging constant resistance to now President-elect Joe Biden. Um, but let's say he isn't going to run, but remains a force and factor in the Republican Party. The people who are running are going to have to decide on kind of how they posture themselves or present themselves or position themselves vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump. Um, and um, it, 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 everybody is going to want to inherit uh, as much of the Trump constituency as possible if he's not in the race in 2024. Um, so that, that will almost inevitably lead to resistance to the Biden agenda. Now, part of this is going to be on, on Biden. Um, to what extent does he have to modify what he wants to do or what he has suggested he will do as president uh, in order to get it through. I mean, I was struck by one of the lines that he had in his speech on Saturday night after he had been declared the, the winner or projected the winner by the networks, uh, when he basically said, you know, people make a decision not to cooperate and people can make a decision to cooperate. Um, I mean, he was throwing a challenge down to Republicans to be cooperative 
suggesting that he will be cooperative uh, as well and that they can get some things done. But, um, but there, and there may be a few things. I mean, there always are a few things where, you know, the two sides can come together. But on the big things, um, I don't think it's a given that, uh, that even if McConnell were willing, and I'm not saying he will be, that the bulk of his party uh, would follow along on that. I mean, they're, you know, we're, again, we're in a divided country and people are looking at who has power and who has the ability to get power. And, and will people be thinking about the 2022 midterms and what it will take for Republicans to perhaps win a majority in the House. And um, we can talk about all that later. But uh, so I, I think it becomes difficult for McConnell, even with a good relationship personally, with Biden, um, assuming that is still the case, uh, to really find ways to, in a sense, do a lot of bipartisan deals on the kind of agenda that that uh, the Democrats want to push forward. Yeah, and and you 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 mentioned the House side of it. Kevin McCarthy, uh, the the minority leader, um, was just jubilant over the outcome of of this election. Not so much that President. Trump has lost, but rather in the House, um, the Democrats may only end up with about a four-seat majority, and, and that would be the, the smallest majority by any majority party in, in about two decades. And, and he's, McCarthy is promising, essentially, almost Newt Gingrich-like, that in 2022, they will take back the House. So if that's his mindset, what, is that, what does that mean for Pelosi? on the House side, and how do they even pass a legislative agenda knowing that McCarthy is sort of nipping at their heels for a, a majority, return to majority in two years? Well, the, what happened in the House was a big shock uh, to both sides, frankly. I mean, all the evidence, both in public polling and particularly apparently in the private polling uh, that both sides were looking at, house, house race by house race, uh, Republicans expected additional losses, not huge losses, but additional losses. Uh, and instead, they've, they've picked up, I guess, 10, 11 seats. And as you say, they could end up with a, you know, with Democrats having only a four seat uh, majority. Now, as you look forward to 2022, normally, the party that wins the presidency also wins a bunch of House seats uh, along the way. And therefore, there's, you know, there's seats to give back, quote, unquote, um, they had a huge set of victories in 2018, and they've now given some of those back. Um, the question is, in, in a normal midterm, the president's party, particularly in the first, the first midterm of a new presidency, um, loses, loses ground. Um, and so one would expect that the Democrats would probably lose ground, but they may not have as much ground to give, given what happened in, in this election. So um, but this is going to be, you know, a battle royal um, for 2022. And Pelosi, um, you know, Pelosi, like McConnell, uh, will do everything she can to preserve the majority she has and look for ways uh, to make her own members less vulnerable uh, than they, you know, than they otherwise might be. Um, we've seen not exactly civil war break out, but we've seen uh, tensions rise between the moderates in the House um, and the, the, the liberal wing of the party. This kind of boiled over at a, at a conference call that they all had late last week that my colleagues reported on, um, in, in which um, 
a number of the moderates and particularly uh, um, Congresswoman Spanberger basically said um, the, the left of the party had put moderates in a very difficult position um, with talk of defunding the police um, and, and, and making candidates across the board vulnerable to charges that the Democrats um, have a socialist or a democratic socialist agenda typified by people like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or um, AOC, people like that. Um, that tension is going to be real. And, and Pelosi, you know, Pelosi has always found ways to manage that pretty effectively. Um, but in this case, it got away from them in part because this was a presidential year, not, not a midterm election. So she's going to have to be very calculating and very shrewd in the way she manages um, the tensions within her own, um, her own ranks. Um, and as she works with, with the Biden White House on developing a legislative program. Yeah, and, and you, write, um, you write that those on the left and in the center called a truce during the campaign in deference to the cause of defeating Trump. Now he's not, <coughs> the, the election hasn't even been certified. And as you said, civil war has essentially broken out with uh, the congresswoman that you spoke about and, and, uh, sent, and Congressman Clyburn going on the, the Sunday morning shows and saying that the sloganeering around defunding and ending private health insurance uh, hurt down-ballot candidates. Now, that's, that's, one, that's one way of, of looking at it. On the other hand, which would be a sort of a knock on the progressives. On the other hand, when you look at the data, and I know you study this stuff, the, the progressives did an enormous amount of organizing and brought out people in um, metropolitan areas in uh, Wisconsin and in Michigan and in Arizona and Nevada that probably tipped the balance in Biden's favor. So they're going to say, you're, you're mistaken here, Clyburn, you're mistaken here, moderates. It's that you weren't progressive enough which is what led to um, the Republican surge in the House that, um, we, that is going to diminish their majority. How do you how do you see that? How do you see sort of who? How do the equities lie in your estimation between how the centrists and the progressives view the results of this election? Well, the the, the challenge for the Democrats, Michael, is that they are a party with an evolving coalition, um, and. This is a coalition that increasingly uh, has included white college-educated women. Uh, we will see how they move in the next few elections with Donald Trump not uh, at the center of attention, um, with younger voters, um, and particularly with, with people of color. Um, African-Americans, we know, are the most loyal constituency. Um, Latinos have been an important constituency, but, but um, there was significant erosion in a number of places in this election, uh, which is a problem for Democrats. Um, but but there, is a, there has been a sense within the party that the, that the liberal wing uh, is the rising part of the party. Um, and as you say, they have provided a tremendous amount of energy and organizing muscle uh, to bring people out who are crucial um, to winning an election, particularly a presidential election, you need that kind of maximum turnout in, in the urban areas. Um, and they were able to deliver that in, in, a, in a more effective way than happened during the 
2016 campaign with Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket. Um, so they, they believe that not, not just that they are owed, but that they represent um, a critical and, and, per, and perhaps critical mass within the party. Um, but um, but the, the biggest gains that the Democrats had in 2018 tended to be in swing suburban areas. And those are the areas where there has been pr trouble this fall uh, in the House elections. And so this is, this is in some ways, an, you know, uh, an irreconcilable conflict in the near term. Um, both sides have a legitimate case to argue, uh, and they will do so. And the progressive wing of the party made no secret heading into the election uh, that while they had, they had, as I put it, you know, agreed to a truce on kind of the, the nature of the policy debate, uh, that they would be, they would be back knocking on the door of a Biden administration um, to, to re-up that debate, particularly over the direction of policy, whether it's on healthcare or climate or um, a variety of other things. So um, this is something that's going to be hashed out within the party. And, and frankly, that, that Biden will have to referee and adjudicate and ultimately make decisions about um, how far he's willing to go to accommodate the left um, and how unwilling he is to go too far in order to preserve what he hopes would be a majority in the House. And maybe, you know, at this point, as you suggest, their hopes of winning the Senate rest on those two races in Georgia. So, you know, a lot of this falls on Biden's shoulders um, as to how he populates his new administration and then chooses uh, the battles to fight. Yeah. What's so interesting about the runoffs in Georgia is that they will occur after Biden will be making his cabinet selections. And so to the extent that the progressives rightly say, we helped you get here and we're, therefore we want a, a seat at the table in some significant um, positions, whether it be um, labor, labor or HUD or the environment, um, the more Biden, it seems, the argument would go from the moderates, the more Biden puts uh, Bernie Sanders in, in charge of the Labor Department or Elizabeth Warren in head of Treasury Department or things along that line, it allows the Georgia Senate seats to be, you know, the, the races to be called. You see, this is, the, this is the creeping socialism that we told you Biden was going to bring, that he's just a caretaker and the real power is behind him. Or, or, or the um, progressives. And if you don't elect these two Republican senators, you're gonna end up with you know, socialism. Is that the debate? Is that how it plays out? So it does, does who he selects in his cabinet impact how the Georgia races turn out? Potentially, sure. Um, I mean, if he, <clears throat> if he were to install Elizabeth Warren as the treasury secretary and or Bernie Sanders as the labor secretary, um, that would send signals and, and would be seized upon by the Republicans in those two Georgia races as evidence of, of Biden being what they claimed in the, you know, in the campaign, you know, when they said he's hostage to the left and the left will run his administration. Um, you know, I don't think that's the case, but he is going to have to make some tough decisions about that. Um, and whether he would do either of those uh, choices for treasury and labor? I don't know yet. I mean, I don't think we know where his, you know, where his head is and how he's thinking of putting the whole cabinet together. But 
um, certainly he's going to have to to make some accommodation to the left in, in in populating the senior positions of his administration, whether it's White House staff or or cabinet positions. Um, but does he does he do it with the highest profile people or people who are less high profile who would who would be um, not household names and would therefore make it more difficult for Republicans to to attach those to Biden and and, and run against them in those those races in Georgia. Um, so the dynamic is fascinating, as you suggest. I mean, it, he has to make decisions ahead of that. Um, but you know, th this is part of the dynamic we're seeing on on the Republican side as well. I mean, there's some speculation that's probably more than speculation that one of the reasons that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans have not pushed harder for President Trump to concede the election, to acknowledge that, that Biden uh, will be the, the, the next president, is to keep the, keep the entire base um, energized for those two Georgia races and not to do anything uh, that would, would put the president crosswise with them uh, that would cause internal divisions that would lessen the enthusiasm that they're going to need to get their vote out. So, I mean, we're, we're you know, again, so much of, of, of American politics these days is about uh, obtaining power or maintaining power. Um, and Biden has to put together an administration in the middle of what is going to be one of the, you know, the highest profiles Senate battles that we've ever seen. Yeah, and it's interesting when we think about the two parties and how they're positioning themselves. Marco Rubio um, said essentially that the two parties presented themselves to America as best for working class America, which is not normal Republican orthodoxy. They don't, you don't think of them as um, being best for working class America. You think of them as being, you know, sort of more for uh, an upper class category, but he tweets, he says, um, Florida and the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, and, and we can talk about Southern Florida and the Rio Grande because those have historically been conservative places, but Florida and the Rio Grande Valley showed the future of the, Demo of the GOP, a party built on a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition of working Americans. So, is, as you see it, as you look at the data from this election, as you see how the position, how the parties are trying to position themselves, is this next few election cycles going to be a competition um, for who is best for uh, Americans, working class Americans, Americans without college degrees, irrespective of, of color, uh, location, national origin, et cetera? Is, it, is that where we are? Well, to some extent, it's where we are. I mean, but to, to you know, I mean, if you if you step back a little farther, I mean, the the challenge for any party that seeks to be a majority party is how do you speak more broadly to the American electorate as a whole? I mean, every party is a coalition. Um, it's a coalition of of ethnic groups. It's a coalition of genders. It's a coalition of of you know of economic groups. Um, and what you're doing is you're trying to assemble 50.1% uh, at a minimum in order to be able to win the elections and then try to be able to govern. Um, there's no question that the Republican Party of today is more a party of, um, of the working class, quote unquote, than it was 25 or 30 years ago. I mean, there has been a shift. The Democratic Party uh, is, is more a party today 
of kind of um, well-educated, more liberal uh, white Americans and, and then African-Americans and, and Latinos and, and other people of color. Um, so the, one of the successes of Donald Trump is to, um, at least for the short term, cement more of those white non-college working voters into his coalition, whether that sticks as part of the Republican coalition uh, to the extent that he has been able to do it uh, is, is a question. Um, these issues, Democrats have always thought of this as, you know, as an economic issue or economic messaging to those voters. But what we've seen over the, the last, you know, you name the number of years, but in recent years, is that there is a cultural divide and that, that uh, Trump and the Republican Party speak to uh, many of those white working class voters uh, on the basis of kind of cultural issues and values issues that, that have less to do pure, with pure economics um, and more to do with, with these other issues. Um, that, that, that is part of the battle that is going forward. So for the Democrats, the challenge is how do you win back enough of those voters to be able to win a majority? Um, and for the Republicans, frankly, it's how do you win back enough of the suburban voters that have defected during Donald Trump in order to, to become a majority. So there's, 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 there's battles in, in a variety of different places. Um, Marco Rubio, when he ran for president in 2016, was preaching similarly what he's preaching now, which is that the, that the Republican Party needed to expand its coalition. Um, he didn't put it as quite as purely in terms of, of, of a working class party, a multi-ethnic working class party, but it was that they had to expand uh, so that they were not primarily a party of white voters. Um, but um, Donald Trump came in and kind of, you know, pardon the pun, but trumped all of the other candidates in terms of the messaging that they were using and, and put his own particular stamp on the Republican party. Um, so um, Rubio's right, this is gonna be part of the battle going forward, but it's a battle that the Democrats have to wage in one direction and the Republicans have to wage from another. Yeah, and, and when you look at the data of the um, numbers from the election, 20.6 million Latinos went to the polls. Overwhelmingly, um, they voted Democratic. Um, now we said the Rio Grande Valley, Hidalgo County and others were, were more Republican strongholds and South Florida, where we saw uh, previously a migration uh, away from uh, few, you know, pure Republican orthodoxy as the uh, Cuban American population aged and the younger ones didn't care. But you've got a lot of uh, people there from Nicaragua and Venezuela who have similarly conservative politics. So, but you've got nonetheless, 64% of the Latino population voting um, and routinely it's been about 50%. African-American voters increased by 20%, largely Democrat. Asian-Americans by 16%, largely Democrat. And uh, white voters only increased by about 6%. So, you know, again, to the progressives point, the real base of the party, which is, you know, Latinos, Af people of color. Um, and then John Delavolpe, De our um, colleague at the Institute of Politics who studies youth voting, uh, sends me a note last night when I asked him what was youth turnout in this election? He said up 60% um, plus for Biden. So you, you have there 
the progressive logic, which says, if we could just continue those numbers, we don't have to worry about um, what Marco Rubio is, is talking about. So do, do you see it? Do you, when you look at the data, you study polls, when you look at the data and you see these numbers of people voting by category, do you see it um, one way or the other? I, Michael, I see it so much through the lens of a divided America um, that we are, we are on the margins of which party has the real, you know, the real strength at this point. You can read the data in a variety of ways. You can read what you've just put out and, and, and a Democrat would say, well, that seems very good for, for our party heading into the future because um, in, some of these are groups that are gonna to continue to expand in terms of uh, their share of the population. And if we're getting the lion's share of that vote, <clears throat> that, that is good for us. But um, politics isn't quite that simple. And the, the notion that demography is destiny is you know, about half right. Um, it's important, but it, it isn't the only uh, thing that matters. Um, what we saw uh, in the African-American vote is that once again, Joe Biden won the overwhelming share of that, but Donald Trump did better with black voters um, than most uh, Republicans have done in recent years. Especially uh, black male voters. Yes, particularly black male voters. And, and um, I haven't looked at the, at, the, at the sub, sub, sub view, but I, presumably that is with younger uh, black male voters. Um, he did far better than many people would have expected in the Latino community. Um, you, you talk about South Texas and the Rio Grande Valley. Um, Star County, which is not a big population center, but it's a border county. Uh, I think uh, I'm right on this. Uh, Hillary Clinton won that county by 60 points and Joe Biden won it by five points. I mean, that's an astonishing shift. Uh, again, it's not big numbers, but it's an astonishing percentage shift. Um, and uh, all along those border counties, Trump did better than Democrats had, had ever imagined he would do. The 23rd district of Texas, which is the district that has been represented by Will Hurd, who, um, who is the only black Republican in the House and who chose not to run again in part, I think, because he had such a difficult race in 2018 and probably thought the handwriting was on the wall and that it would be almost impossible uh, to hold that seat uh, if he ran in 2020. Well, lo and behold, uh, the, the Republican who chose to, to run instead is the, is the congressman-elect from that district. Um, in South Florida, as you suggest, um, the, the Hispanic community in Florida is obviously much different than it is in Texas. I mean, they're to two totally different states. In, in Texas, it's primarily Mexican-Americans. In South Florida, uh, it's a mix of, of many groups from different parts of Latin America. Um, but the, the kind of cratering that Biden had in South Florida, particularly among the, the Hispanic community, um, not only uh, helped to cost him Florida, uh, but cost the Democrats a couple of House seats there, including Donna Shalala, the former HHS secretary who had been elected, uh, newly elected in 2018. She lost in her reelection bid. So um, the Latino community is a community that is probably more up for grabs than people had uh, anticipated. Not that it's not gonna, for the foreseeable future, vote more Democratic than Republican, but that Republicans can make 
greater inroads um, than Democrats would like to see. And so that's that's going to be part of the battle, too. Yeah. And, and we have a question um, on the uh, on the Q&A, which basically asks, what will be the effects of this increasing diversity on the Republican Party? You know, the Republican Party has not historically been a very diverse party or welcoming of diversity, notwithstanding the language of, of Rubio and some of the other so-called big tent Republicans. But if, if what we saw in this election cycle, which was many more women, many more people of color running as, as Republicans, what, what, how do you see that tension between like the, the traditional Republican Party and now this new wave of, of upstart uh, Republicans uh, who are diverse? Well, the Republican Party is a divided party. We know that. And, and um, in some ways more so than the Democrats, in part because of the fissures created by, by President Trump. Um, the, the, the elected leadership um, of the Republican Party you know, has been unwilling to challenge Trump in, in direct ways. But we know that, that they disagree with him both on policy and on, you know, and on his conduct. Um, and so one of the things we are going to see going forward um, as, as the 2024 presidential field begins to assemble on the Republican side uh, is how people make their pitches. And so I think we know, you know, we know kind of Rubio's view of the world. Um, we've seen some others who have taken um, a more aggressive kind of pro-Trump posture, or, or at least have been, have been more careful about um, offending him. So, you know, that, that, is, that is tension that's gonna play out within the Republican party. There are ideological differences within the Republican party. Um, now, the fact that they, they have had success in the House races this fall uh, with electing uh, considerably more women than they had in the, in the last Congress or the current Congress um, is, a, is, for Republicans, a very hopeful and important sign. I mean, they need to be able uh, to begin to win back women voters, particularly suburban women voters. Um, and that's, you know, that's part of the, you know, the, the open question in a post-Trump world, uh, and, and I use that term loosely because we don't know quite what a post-Trump world <laughs> means, whether it's post-Trump with Trump or post-Trump without Trump, uh, but, um, but that, that is part of it. And um, a, appealing to other, you know, others, I mean, whether it's Latinos or African-Americans, um, will create some conflicts. Um, but for the Republicans, I think it is gonna to continue to be a predominantly white party. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, the question is, can they, like Donald Trump was able to do um, this time, win a greater share of people of color than they have in the past? And is that enough to put them over the top? Um, but then what do they do um, in terms of, of policies? How much does that affect the policies that they're putting forward? Right, that's right. Just as Pelosi um, is under pressure, uh, so will McCarthy and so will McConnell to put forth policies that this new breed of, of Republicans, this you know, so more working class friendly um, group, find acceptable. Or if they go, if they turn hard right, that these people abandon them, and and we just don't. Um, we just don't. We just don't know how it works. Do you? Do you have a sense um, in looking at the data? We know that um, Republicans reversed the Democratic uh, midterm gains gains in rural districts 
and they clawed back a seat in Southern California and in, in, in Miami. Um, the Democrats didn't pick up the gains they hoped in the suburb, suburbs of Texas and Indiana and Missouri. Um, is, 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 what is that a, a failing of? Is it just that people revert back to their normal positions or is it the Democrats aren't speaking to these people in, in, in policy terms that, that, that they like? Well, I mean, on, on the one hand, Biden's victory gives the Democrats, you know, the opportunity now to present themselves in a fuller way to the American people. Um, and as president, he will obviously be the one who charts the, the future course of the Democratic Party over the next two and four years. Um, but what happened this, this fall is that the results indicate that the Democrats in one way or another did not have a message that resonated beyond simply saying, we need to remove Donald Trump from office. Um, this, was, this was frankly always the Biden uh, strategy uh, that this was going to be a referendum on Donald Trump and that the way to win the White House was to keep that front and center. Um, we know that Joe Biden never generated real enthusiasm even within his own party. When, when we did polling, uh, when, when everybody did polling, people who were voting for Biden, uh, a, a majority and sometimes a significant majority said they were voting uh, against Donald Trump rather than for Joe Biden. It was just the opposite for people who were supporting Donald Trump. Overwhelmingly, they were saying, I'm voting for Donald Trump. Um, so, um, and, and frankly, the, the Biden uh, campaign and the Biden candidacy, he did not have an overarching vision um, that, that generated great enthusiasm. So um, when it came to some of those down ballot races, people People said, well, I'm not sure what the Democrats are for, and I'm going to vote for the Republicans here. Some of it may be simply the, the, a desire for divided government, um, which we know is the case. Um, and, and because so many of these were close races, a little bit of movement at the margins was enough to change them. So um, uh, Texas was, for the Democrats, a, a, a great failure, um, whether it was because their expectations had gotten you know, too uh, exuberant that they thought they were gonna be able to pick up a bunch of house seats and, and perhaps even carry the state in the presidential race. Um, but none of that came to pass. I mean, it, it compared to what the, what the talk was before the election. Um, and there was, you know, there's obviously movement in Texas that's, that's been taking place. But uh, in, this, in this election, the Democrats were not able in a significant way to move forward uh, the, the forces that have been changing that state. Uh, Biden's, Biden's defeat was by a smaller margin than Clinton's defeat. So you have to say that, you know, if you look back over four elections um, at the presidential level, the state of Texas has moved away from the Republicans and toward the Democrats. Um, but if you look at the totality of the races this year, you have to say, this is still a red state uh, perhaps it's moving slowly toward something that's more competitive. And I think it will be, you know, it will continue to be seen as, as potentially competitive. Um, but um, but getting, getting over the finish line was something that the Democrats were not able to do in, in the areas where they thought that they had opportunities. So I think it is a reminder to the Democratic Party 
that you you do need more than simply a message of let's get rid of the other you know the other guy uh, that you that you you have to present something to voters that is, that is acceptable and that in many ways uh, creates energy and enthusiasm for it and they seemingly were not able to do that. Yeah. So Dan, I know you've got a hard stop coming up. I want to ask you uh, one policy question and then you've been covering this uh, for a long time. And I want you to give us your historical perspective, but in, in policy terms, one of the things that um, will be interesting to me is the China strategy that, that Trump had and, and, and China U.S. Uh, trade relationships and the importance of, of what he was trying to do there as a competition matter. Do, do you, how do you, I don't know if this is an area that you cover, but what do you, what do you see happening on the, the U.S.-China trade strategy? And will it continue to allow for U.S. investment, you know, in competition with China? Will we default to record um, deficits with China and China reverts back to its its formal way. How, how do you see that? Um, well, I, I think that that during the Trump presidency, there has been a, a, a shift in, in perceptions and attitudes about what the U.S. posture toward China should be in the future. Um, and, and it is a significant change from the way things were uh, at the end of the Obama administration. Um, I think there are two reasons for that. One is the way Donald Trump approached it. Um, and his very, you know, much more hard line on trade issues. Um, and second, I think it is what has happened under Xi Jinping in the time that Donald Trump has been president and the degree to which um, uh, Xi has, has locked down uh, China um, democratically, I mean, and, and snuffed out any hopes of that this is going to become a, a significantly more democratic uh, nation and government. Um, and so the combination of those has forced both people around Trump and people uh, on the left and people around Biden to think differently about this. So um, one, of the, one of the things you have heard often from, from Democrats and critics of the way Trump has handled China policy is that it's not that he's wrong in be, being more aggressive, but what he has done is tried to do it unilaterally as opposed to um, having allies around the world, particularly in Europe, join the United States in putting up a more united front against China, which they have argued would be more effective than what Trump has been able to do. I mean, the, the returns that Trump has been able to get are pretty limited. Um, um, and so I think the question for Biden is how he will calibrate that um, uh, as president, how, how tough he will try to be, and whether he is able to rally others around the world, uh, other allies, to take a similar approach and whether that would be more effective in changing China's behavior. Um, but we also know that he will be presumably tougher on human rights issues than Trump has been because Trump has been AWOL on those. Um, and that, that will also create additional tension. So uh, this is an enormously important set of decisions that Biden will have to make. Um, and presumably we will have to see that relatively early in his administration. Yeah, and we, we, we've seen over the years China involved uh, commercially all, all over the world and the U.S. sort of pulling back a little bit. Maybe we'll see whether the United States is going to make more economic investment in places like Latin America and Africa to try to 
be more of a, a competitor on the global stage? I, I would I would think so. Um, I mean, China, the, the Belt and Road Initiative um, has allowed China to insinuate itself in all kinds of places around the world and therefore obtain greater influence. Um, and, and a lot of those countries are, will be torn um, about where their allegiance is or, or whether they're going to stick with the United States or tilt more toward China. Um, and, and there are some European countries that are, you know, that are kind of in the same position. So, um, you know, Biden has done a lot of calls with foreign leaders this week. Um, and with the, with the easy message that America's back and that we believe in our allies and we want to work with our allies and, um, but that, you know, that's, you know, that's not unimportant. It's symbolically important. It's practically important. Um, but you have to put a lot of meat on the bones on that um, you, because you're not returning to the world that existed when, when Joe Biden left the vice presidency. Um, the world has moved on. The world has gone through some difficult times. And, and you know, we haven't really spoken about the pandemic, but uh, the pandemic I, I suspect um, is is creating, um, you know, the seeds for greater nationalism, um, not just on the part of you know countries led by authoritarian leaders, but but all countries that um, everybody is you know in a sense looking out for their own people right now. Um, so that that creates an environment that is more challenging to do some of the kinds of things that that, that Biden. Um, may want to do than it's been in the past. Yeah, although, you know, maybe a reinvigorated World Health Organization and some sort of SALT-like treaty around pandemics um, is, is the logical next step so that we can behave globally. I mean, the, the thing that used to gall me about President Trump's response to the pandemic when he called it the China pandemic and that he had cut off people from China coming here was the naivete of, 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 of that position. It's a global problem and, and people from China could leave China to go any other place than from any other place to come here. And then we pull away from the World Health Organization and we become a balkanized world dealing with a global pandemic. You know, I think that Biden has to address it as a global phenomenon and try to get away from nationalistic responses to, to this uh, to be successful. I think he will do that. I think he will he will rejoin the World Health Organization, um, but um, but the World Health Organization didn't necessarily perform, you know, brilliantly at the beginning of this. So that's going to require um, taking potentially tough action to reform that. I mean, it's it's just. I mean, these are enormous problems, um, and and where does Biden start? How much can he do at any one time? I mean. Um, you know, Michael, you know, there's only so much that, in, that a president can do uh, in the first two years of, of a presidency. Um, and he's, he, he has to deal with the pandemic. He has to deal with the pandemic at home first. Right. Um, that's that's going to be the, the, the single most important priority because it is, it is what he has staked his presidency on, that he will do a better job of, of containing and suppressing this virus than Donald Trump did, um, so that that's 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 job one. You know, related to that, obviously, is creating you know a, a global uh, approach to this. Um, but that will come second, and that will be much 
much slower uh, to to come to fruition. So um, I think those are the those are the realistic uh, situations that, that that Joe Biden is going to be dealing with. Yeah. So uh, as um, Peyton Manning said to to others, this was not his first radio, rodeo. This is not <laughs> your your first presidential election. To 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 close us out, Dan, and this has been just as it always is when I talk to you, so educational. What, what, as you look at this in historical terms, what encourages you? What gives you reason to concern? And, and, and what are you looking for in, in the coming weeks and months? How, how are you going to be looking at it? Well, I, I think what makes me most hopeful is the, the, the number of people who turned out to vote. I mean, we have a historic turnout in this election. Uh, it may be the biggest in percentage terms in, in 100 years, and it's certainly in raw numbers, uh, the biggest by far. I mean, we're, you know, we're well over 140 million people. Um, we could get to 100, and, I don't know what, 145, 150, 100, you know, 150 maybe. Um, that, that's, that's enormously impressive, and I think everybody needs to feel good about that, particularly because it has taken place in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, there were obviously concerns last summer about would people be afraid to vote, and that was part of the reason there was such a debate about mail ballots and uh, how, how people would be able to vote. Um, but whatever the rules were in whatever state people lived in, they found a way to come out and vote. And, and those passions and that expression uh, is vitally important. And I think that, that we should all you know, feel good about that. Um, what concerns me is that we came out of this election um, every bit as divided as when we went in and, 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 and we may be even a little bit more divided. Um, and those divisions um, are so difficult to overcome at this moment for all for you know we can talk about that for a long time but but these are these are divisions that are now deeply embedded in in the american electorate and in american society frankly uh, it's not just it's not just political divisions it's just it's a, it's a broader difference uh, in the way people see the world and and from where they see the world and those those divisions are are very very difficult the third, uh, the third area. I mean, another thing that gives me concern uh, is that is that we have seen the fragility, uh, the potential fragility of some of our institutions, and that that they can be they can come under attack and they can be weakened. And um, I, I worry that this even the aftermath of this election, uh, even if, as you say, these these legal fights will will basically kind of wither away, um, which seems likely. Um, that that seeds are planted to question the integrity uh, of our elections in ways that go beyond what have existed before, um, and that that to me is worrisome. So um, so we're you know we're you know we're at a you know we're at a very important point in the history of the country. Um, Joe Biden has you know opportunities to try to bring the country together. It's it's you know if beyond his you know his campaign message to get rid of Donald Trump, his other big campaign message was to try to unite a divided country. Um, it's going to be challenging. I think he's genuine in wanting to try to do that. Um, to the degree to which he can do that would be very, very helpful to the country. 
Um, but you have to think coming out of this election uh, that that's going to be as or more difficult than he might have imagined. Yeah, I think really in some sense, in some historical sense, we're at, we're at a second American reconstruction. Uh, if we can't reconstruct ourselves in, in the way that Lincoln endeavored to do before he was assassinated, then I, I, I worry about where we're headed um, as a country. I'm not sure if you, if you share that view or not, but that, that's a scary thought for me. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I try to be an optimist by nature uh, <clears throat> and journalistically a skeptic. Um, and I have to say my skepticism is, is stronger than my optimism right now, at least in the short term. I mean, it, it, you know, this is not something that happened overnight, Michael. I mean, we, we've been moving in this direction for, you know, for a couple of decades, frankly, uh, toward a more polarized political environment and, and toward a country in which um, because of the, you know, the economic changes and the technological changes and the demographic changes, um, that there's a, you know, that there's a, in a sense, a rising uh, America and an America that is wary of the new America that's, you know, that's being born. Um, and that will take a long time to work out. Somebody said some time ago, which I had uh, have thought about a lot, which is that there's probably no democracy that we can think of um, that is going through the kind of change that the United States is going through, which is to say, uh, going from basically a predominantly and, and overwhelmingly white nation to a majority minority country. Um, that, you know, that is not easily done. I mean, that, that doesn't happen just with the snap of a finger or, or simply the, you know, the change in numbers of a census. Um, that requires everybody to kind of rethink their place in that America. And what we have seen is that there are a lot of people who find the thought of that threatening uh, and worrisome. And, and political leaders have to speak to that part of the electorate as well as to the new part of the electorate. And so uh, that's the challenge now. That was the challenge for Donald Trump. He made no effort to try to unite the country or to expand beyond his own coalition. It's now the, the challenge for, for uh, President-elect Biden. So I think on, on, on that note, Dan, we, we've kept you longer than you said you could be kept. And I very much appreciate you sticking around. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.